Hello and welcome to this special edition of the WebF Week podcast, where we explore some of the topics coming up over the week ahead. You can register to join the WebF Week. This is a free-to-attend digital event where we explore some of the key issues around the built and natural environment with leading experts. If you're tuning into this podcast after WebF Week, you can find out more about the event on our website, rscs.org forward slash WebF. I am Keita Zara, Sustainability Analyst at RICS. I'm joined by Susan Eichemann, REAP, FRICS, Chair, RICS European World Regional Board, RICS Advisory Board for Germany and IGC Institute. And Christopher Seymour, FRICS, RICS Chair, Middle East and Africa World Regional Board and Regional Director for the Middle East, Africa, South Asia at Mott McDonald. Today, we will be talking about sustainable placemaking in a net zero, resilient world. How are companies thinking about retrofitting and redevelopment and resilience? Why is it important that we think about improving social outcomes? And what role should technology play in supporting the built environment's net zero transition? WebF Week examines sustainable placemaking in a net zero resilient world. The future's fringe content looks at the technologies that could shape practices in the built environment in the near and far future. While the week's live sessions involve discussions about the key challenges and solutions across a range of topics from retrofitting policies, improving the outcomes of people and places affected by climate change to the best practices in carbon management, and measurement across the land and building life cycle. So my first question for you, Chris, is that looking at the Middle East, which has relatively new buildings and infrastructure compared to other regions, what do you think are going to be the most important points for discussion during this week? Thanks very much. It's a great great question to start with. I'm very pleased to be here as well. So thank you for uh, inviting me on. I think the, back, the first of all, it's important to look at the context uh, of the region and as similar to other places in the world, it has uh, net zero ambitions somewhere between 2050 and 2060. And and therefore, as it's very similarly to the rest of the world, in order to, to attract uh, investment, particularly uh, for direct investment, which is very important uh, in this region, it generally, there is clearly a need for projects to have a, a green context. Otherwise, uh, that vital funding uh, is unlikely to get there. But the the, the the region is very much it is quite dynamic insofar as some parts of the region such as the UAE are uh, are quite mature in terms of the amount of infrastructure that has been developed here, and other parts of the region uh, such as Saudi Arabia are very much in that growth spurt. So you've really got this twin approach where you've got some markets are in a very much an asset creation cycle such as uh, Saudi Arabia, whereas other markets have been in that asset creation cycle and are kind of in that asset management cycle. So you've got those two approaches where in creation, you're interested in actually how can you decarbonize new infrastructure, whereas in an asset management sense, you're probably looking uh, more around uh, retrofitting and uh, saving carbon during the operations. And so from the regional perspective, I think the things that are going to be interesting uh, in the uh, in the forthcoming week are going to be about really those two things. First of all, how can we decarbonize uh, the creation of those assets and infrastructure, uh, and and equally where those assets are already created, 
how can we retrofit uh, to save carbon? And equally, how can we uh, look at the look at the operational aspects of it to to, to equally make sure that the, uh, the carbon is not there? I think that at least minimise the carbon. I think the front end piece around the investment is becoming going to become even more important, however. And so some of these uh, projects that in the past may have actually secured that vital funding, unless there's a credible route to decarbonizing the assay and creation, then that funding is increasingly going to be harder and harder to find. Thank you. And looking at it from a more of a commercial real estate perspective, are there specific sessions and speakers that you would like to highlight from the week ahead, Suzanne? Yeah, thank you, Kiza, for having me here in this session. And uh, for commercial real estate, it is very important to have an overview what has to be done to reach the targets. Managers have to be aware of the status quo of their portfolio and how this will fit to the carbon pathway or other targets. Defining measures, having a time frame and aligning of capital will be essential and important also to answer question on disclosure duties. So I have seen Tina Payet will give an update on policies for retrofitting and uh, you will also hear from examples for innovative retrofitting, very interesting uh, things. I recommend the session about the macroeconomic outlook so we all know the nice reports of the Global Commercial Property Monitor and we have seen that there are some uh, really hard downturns in some regions. So they will also discuss the role of valuation in establishing a future-proofed world. So this will be also a key issue for RICS to define and help all the valuers all over the world. And I think there is a really good keynote from the Global Energy Agency that will focus on the World Energy Outlook 2022. It's uh, also a very recommended session. If we delve into more of the, the, the retrofitting topic, so among among the live discussions on Tuesday, there are a series of sessions looking at retrofitting policies and priorities around the world from Asia-Pacific through the Middle East and Africa, UK, Europe and Americas. So Suzanne, how important is retrofitting to achieving net zero? So if we remember that 98% of the buildings are already built and only 2%, around 2% are new buildings, so retrofitting will become the most important part yeah, to manage revenues, costs, carbon, and also profits. I think this uh, is not really aware in all minds uh, at the moment, but we need a bigger shift yeah, to retrofitting because it will have an impact on the biggest part of the portfolio. How do you think real estate companies in Europe think about retrofitting as part of their journey towards net zero? So RICS um, has a really nice uh, part on the homepage about the renovation wave. And I always say it's not really a wave, it's a renovation weight. Yeah. Yes. So I think we must focus more on this retrofitting also in Europe. And we need a little bit more pressure from the politics 
to push uh, retrofitting. Yeah, they are all focusing at the moment on new buildings, new materials, and everything. But uh, they are not having in mind that it, this is not our biggest priority. So it's a, as always. Yeah, if you talk about new buildings, everybody listen. If you talk about the old ones and what has to be done, they are all saying, oh, 2050, long time to go. Yeah, let's talk about that later. So this must be change. And I think it's all over the world where we see that we need more pressure from the politics, from the rules, but also from the update of uh, approval processes on this, yeah. So they all fear a little bit uh, what they have to do when they want to retrofit. There must be a fast lane, yeah, for retrofitting. And Chris, how are stakeholders in the Middle East region thinking about building resilience to climate extremes in the future? It's uh, it's a good question. Just picking up what on what the the, the what Suzanne was saying earlier. I think uh, retrofitting in the Middle East is probably even that step behind uh, Europe. Again, the assets were created uh, even more recently, so that's really only just uh, becoming uh, or becoming seen as an important part of the uh, a part of the carbon reduction scheme. And I think it's something that in this region it, it, we very much need to take um, uh, take more notice of it. From the Middle East perspective, climate extremes we can expect are more extremes of temperature now. Occasionally. During the uh, the summer months in the Middle East, you can expect on occasion uh, you may get uh, uh, temperatures in excess of 50 degrees. Well, going forward, if the world doesn't come to terms with the need to decarbonize and greenhouse gas uh, emissions uh, continue, then we can expect many more of those extreme heat events and uh, to the point that they may become the norm. Now, what happens there is a number of things. First of all, we need to think about actually from purely a well-being perspective, how would we even build and create assets in that temperature? It is not feasible to work on construction sites for long periods of time during those uh, during those heat events. And the second thing is, is how do materials actually behave during those periods? They're rarely tested to withstand that type of temperature for long periods. And so in terms of building resilience issue, we need to be looking far, far more closely at the materials that we're using to the external, not just the external envelope, but also to the, mecha the exposed mechanical uh, and electrical plant, and uh, just to make sure that it could actually uh, withstand those events. Clearly, loads on uh, cooling systems and air conditioning systems are going to be far higher because the ambient temperature externally is far higher. And that also leads to not only increased cost, but also increased energy inputs, which further means that it, that there needs to be uh, a greater care in terms of the energy sources that are being used for building. So again, it would increase the, the energy demand. The, the other thing that we need to recognize is that from a, a probably the southern area of the Middle East, we're, we're talking about Oman and Yemen areas, we are likely to get more of the, the, the raid events. Now again, occasionally uh, we may get a tropical storm uh, coming up from the south, it'll affect those those geographies. What we're likely to see in the future is that those events happen more often. Now that gives rise to a, potentially flash floods 
and uh, extreme amounts of rain. And from that perspective, we need to make sure that infrastructure, not just buildings, uh, but the infrastructure and the drainage is able to actually cope with those sorts of volumes that in the past, uh, it hasn't been necessary to do so. So really from the Middle East perspective, it's around creating resilience, material resilience for extreme uh, heat. We need to think of the well-being aspect uh, well ahead of that. And then in the southern parts, it's probably more equally uh, around some of those those rain events that we should also expect, which would affect uh, drainage infrastructure, etc. Among the, the key takeaways from COP27 for the built envir- environment was the focus on cities, as cities are responsible for about 70% of greenhouse gas emissions. But the biggest barriers to achieving decarbonisation in our cities is the upfront costs. So Suzanne, could you tell us about whether you know, financial innovation, how necessary is it to speed up the decarbonisation of our cities? Yeah, I think if we look in different regions, like Chris already said, in the world, uh, then we know it will be very important to do something against the heat. We need more shade in Europe. That's nothing what we are familiar with at this moment. But on the other hand, if you look to the cities, they have to be attractive for investors. And that means they have to update their building policies. They have to update their land use. And they have to turn down restrictions. And uh, they have to maybe create a fast lane for approval processes to Getting a little, little bit more certainty into these processes, yeah, because investors fear a ten-year approval process. So this will not help the cities, yeah. If you look to the energy transition and uh, the importance of cleaner energy, they need to find new measures to make cleaner energy for not only one building for a group of buildings in the city. So this is also an important part of the city to focus on a better grid, on a better collaboration between the landlords to find a better way for heating, cooling and energy transition in the cities. And my last point is also on well-being, yeah? Making cities as a good neighborhood, as better places, at a, as a well-being area. This will mean that uh, the cities have to focus more on the social impact of investments, not only what the building can do for this city, how is it integrated in the city, what are the special purposes of this building to make the cities more livable. So, you know, there are a lot of points what the politics and what the authorities can do, but uh, I think they are focused on such a lot of things from the COVID problems. They are focused on such a lot of things of the energy crisis that they are not really looking in the future and on this future topics. And uh, this will not help yeah, to make investors interested in investing for better cities. If we delve in a bit more to the well-being and the social aspect of it, how important is that we think about improving social outcomes from infrastructure projects? 
I think it's vital and, and quite often infrastructure projects are very much focused on the necessity. So, for example, if it is a metro, it's focused on the necess- necessity of moving uh, populations between different centres. But if we actually look at the value in terms of the social capital, for example, then we're much more likely to see the positive outcomes in that project. And I think now, to a certain extent, as I say, they were always in the projects, but in order to maximize them, we really need to start thinking about them very early on. And so part of that, rather than just looking at the infrastructure project in terms of necessity, the cost, and even counting the carbon related to that infrastructure, what we also need to be doing is looking at the the value in terms of the social and the human aspects of the project outcome. And in that way, we may also be able to see ways to actually maximize that value during the life of the infrastructure asset. But I think it's something that's becoming far more important now. And along with the green agenda, we're also seeing this value agenda uh, coming through. And I believe that they're both are entirely linked together and indeed should be uh, considered in parallel. If you look at technology's role in supporting the transition, what are the most important questions we should be asking expert panels about the promises and pitfalls of using technology to support the transition? The, the use of technology in infrastructure is now quite well practiced and it's something that the industry is very used to doing. However, I think that we can make better use of that technology. If you look at the uh, the data, quite a lot of the, uh, in fact, the majority of data that's created during the design cycle of an asset, around about 80% of it, isn't then used later on. Uh, now, this is a lost opportunity and something that we really need to start looking at. And we can do that by utilizing the digital models that are used for creating that asset, we can carry those forward into the operational phase of the project to actually use the data and then use it for the value of delivering not only the the infrastructure system, uh, but also probably maximizing those other values that I mentioned earlier. There's another aspect there as well, which is to make sure that the solutions that are being proposed also have a practical application. Quite often uh, in this world, we will see uh, the theoretical value, the theoretical use of digital solutions, but it's sometimes it's quite hard to understand how practically uh, that can be used both in uh, the asset creation and the asset management phases of the of the asset. So I, I think those would be the those would be the good questions uh, to be asking those experts uh, during next week. I would like to underline what uh, Chris was saying about uh, digitization. Yeah, so we need more data in the future, and uh, at the moment we do not have all the data, and it is not available in a way we need it for disclosure, for reporting, for everything, or at least for making decisions. So digitization is one of the biggest topics to be innovative. yeah. Thinking about that, um, and Kisa, you said, uh, right, I'm working on tech for impact maps in Europe, for example, and there are lots of innovations underway. It's in analytics, in research, in sustainable building, in asset management, and in ESG reporting, and also in smart cities. Yeah, When I look at that innovation, they are 
almost covering just a very small piece of the whole process. And if you look at the processes in the built environment sector, so you can see that uh, there is a really long value chain. Yeah. And a lot of players are picking sub parts of this value chain. And the companies, if they are looking for innovation, they want to cover a bigger part of this value chain. So for the companies, it's often not so easy to identify how much uh, the performance will go on or the profits will be higher by using this kind of innovation or maybe the carbon can be reused or the climate will be better. So there's often a hurdle yeah, to use that new technologies, but I think there are some really good technologies underway. There are a lot of tech for impact maps tech for climate maps where you can look at and uh, I think the most uh, important one is the climate and the energy map yeah to make sure that you know everything about the energy usage of your building and have all figures together from the landlord side but also from the tenant side to make better decisions on a cleaner energy and uh, on the building side, I think we need to inform the construction companies that they have to change their sometimes old style processes. Yeah. So we can read it in the RICS sustainability report. Yeah. That uh, just the half of them is measuring carbon. Yeah. So how can we build with uh, resilient and sustainable materials? if we don't measure carbon or make decisions on that, yeah. Thank you so much, Suzanne and Chris. And a final question. If attendees to WebF Week should go away with one key message from the week, what would that message be for you? So I'll start with Suzanne and then Chris. So I think this uh, week is a great opportunity to update yourself on all innovations in the built environment pick up your pieces of interest and learn about the news. Chris? And uh, I think, and likewise, as, as Suzanne, this, this week is, is so rich in content that uh, it, it, for me, I think it really is uh, unmissable. And whilst I'm sure that uh, our colleagues maybe won't be able to sit through all of it, I would really recommend uh, picking out those uh, those individual parts that they find particularly interesting and it will be the content uh, will be extremely valuable. Thank you so much, Suzanne and Chris. Very interesting discussion. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>